Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 25th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Global military spending reaches an all-time high. Tucker Carlson leaves Fox News. Ex-Peruvian President Alejandro Toledo is extradited from the U.S. Australia unveils its biggest defense overhaul since World War II. Police investigate 70 deaths in an alleged starvation cult in Kenya. Fugitive Sikh separatist Amritpal Singh is arrested in India. China's ambassador to France faces backlash over remarks on ex-Soviet states. Bed, Bath and Beyond files for bankruptcy. Credit Suisse says it lost $68 billion in assets last quarter. And Biden's team reportedly picks Julie Chavez Rodriguez as his 2024 campaign manager. In our top story, global military spending reaches an all-time high. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera. The Stockholm International Peace and Research Institute, Yahoo News, Associated Press, and Axios. Military spending worldwide reached an all-time high of $2.24 trillion last year, a leading defense think tank said in a new report issued Monday. In its annual report on global military expenditure, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI, said military spending has risen for the eighth consecutive year and jumped by 3.7% in real terms since the previous year. The continuous rise in global military expenditure in recent years is a sign that we are living in an increasingly insecure world, Nan Tian, a senior researcher at CIPRI, said. States are bolstering military strength in response to a deteriorating security environment, which they do not foresee improving in the near future. The largest jumps in expenditure were seen in Europe, which saw a 13% rise, the steepest the figure has been in 30 years. Much of that was credited to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which prompted increased spending among both countries and in neighboring states who perceive a threat of escalation. For example, Finland increased spending by 36%, while Lithuania spent an additional 27%. Sweden saw an increase of 12%, while an 11% rise was seen in Poland. U.S. spending on the military continued to top the list with $877 billion spent last year, a figure that was more than the next 10 countries combined. China was second with $292 billion, while Russia was third on the list with spending of $86 billion. The only region where military spending declined was sub-Saharan Africa, after the biggest spender Nigeria reduced expenditure by 38% year-on-year. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from Al Jazeera. This rise in global military spending has been largely fueled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Unsurprisingly, that neighboring countries, such as Finland, Lithuania, and Poland, have had to ramp up spending to keep the Russian threat at bay. The establishment critical narrative coming from San Jose Mercury News. The U.S., by far the world's biggest military spender, needs to rethink this. Every year, the figure rises without anyone stopping to ask if such an increase is really necessary. U.S. spending on the military will likely exceed $1 trillion in the coming decade. Congress needs to reevaluate. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that at least 2.19% of world GDP will be spent on military expenses in the year 2030. 
I have to admit, G.I. Joe is the best dressed in the world. Well, knowing is half the battle, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Hill, CNBC, Axios, and ABC News. Fox News said Monday that talk show host Tucker Carlson and the network have agreed to part ways, adding that last Friday was the last showing of Carlson's show and thanked him for his service to the network. Carlson, who worked for the network for over 10 years, signed off his show on Friday, stating he would return Monday. Fox's statement said that Carlson would not return on Monday, meaning he was unable to bid his viewers farewell. The host's departure was announced just days after the network settled its defamation case with Dominion Voting Systems for $787.5 million. Fox News has not commented on whether the departure and the settlement are linked. The lawsuit named 20 broadcasts that participated in the alleged defamation. Carlson was one of the first witnesses after they secured his private text messages with colleagues Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, which spoke to Carlson's dislike of former President Trump and critique of election conspiracies that were touted on the network. In place of Carlson's primetime show, which airs on Monday at 8 p.m., the network will now air a program titled Fox News Tonight that will be hosted by a rotating cast until a permanent host is named. This comes as CNN also announced the departure of longtime host Don Lemon from its network on Monday, a move that came without explanation and astonished the media industry, according to CNN itself. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. The left narrative comes from MSNBC. It's about time that Fox News took accountability for and applied some consequences to Tucker Carlson's toxic and blatant spread of lies and defamation that did nothing short of undermining American democracy. Carlson's removal is a step towards restoring democracy and the civility of the American people. And the right narrative comes from Breitbart. The lengths to which Democrats and the woke crowd will celebrate Carlson's departure show that they believed he was a threat to the establishment's agenda. His departure also demonstrates that while Fox News claims to expose Democrats and the government, it has defected and declared war on Trump and his supporters. There's a narrative C as well, coming from Politico. The simultaneous departures of Carlson from Fox and Lemon from CNN mark a seismic shift in the media landscape. Ironically, this upheaval comes just days before the 2023 White House Correspondents' Dinner. It's clear that the cable news industry is in the midst of a broadcast bloodbath, and the fallout will shed light on how the cable news market is rapidly evolving. You're going to be going to the uh, correspondence dinner, aren't you, Scott? You and Carlson, don't you guys have like a uh, a shared table? Well, we split table? the table. I yeah, thought you I mean, were guys. Yeah, yeah. It's not cheap. I mean, it, you you split the table, and you know, it's there's nine seats. So every year we switch off. I get five, he gets four. He only gets four seats this year, so he'll have to you know fill them. Who knows if he's even coming? You know, if one of those spots opens up, you can come, but only well, I, if uh, one of those spots open up. Aren't you guys doing the, uh, the the little Applebee's dinner for two thing? Oh yeah, yeah, we get one appetizer, <laughs> one dessert. You yeah, those, yeah. But, but we each get our own entree. Okay, so good, good. That's, that's good. good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You're a smart man. Yeah, stretch your dollar these days. Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. He just lost his job. Got to be smart. <laughs> <laughs> News coming from Peru as ex-president Toledo is extradited from the U.S. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Reuters, The Guardian, Associated Press, New York Times, and Forbes. On Sunday, Peruvian authorities imprisoned former President Alejandro Toledo 
hours after he landed in the capital, Lima. He was in the custody of Interpol officers following extradition from the U.S. The 77-year-old, who was president between 2001 and 2006, has been ordered to serve a pretrial detention of 18 months inside a police base on the outskirts of Lima, where former presidents Alberto Fujimori and Pedro Castillo are also being held. Toledo is accused of taking around $35 million in bribes from Brazilian construction firm Odebrecht in exchange for awarding a lucrative contract to build a highway linking Peru and Brazil during his term. Toledo left Peru in 2016, returning to his alma mater, Stanford University, as a visiting scholar to study education in Latin America. Since 2019, when he was arrested in Menlo Park, California, he had been engaged in a legal battle against his extradition, which came to an end on Friday as he returned himself into U.S. federal agents. Though the former Peruvian president denies the allegations of money laundering and corruption, Odebrecht has admitted to paying $800 million in bribes to officials throughout Latin America in exchange for public works contracts. Every elected Peruvian president since 1985 is either in jail, has been in jail, or faced arrest. Okay, thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Narrative A from Foreign Affairs. Peru has been trying to rebuild its democracy over the last two decades, but still struggles to elect a government that can operate without corruption. The struggle against political corruption requires a strong judiciary, stable party structures, strict enforcement of anti-corruption strategies, and control over illegal and foreign financing of presidential elections, all currently lacking in Peru. Narrative B coming from Geopolitical Economy. The fact that Peru has already had seven presidents since 2016 speaks volumes about the country's political situation. However, there's a reason for optimism for Peruvian democracy if structural reforms are implemented to put the country on a sound institutional footing. Peru holds its leaders accountable for crimes committed against its democratic institutions. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says that there is a 50% chance that Peru's GDP per capita will be at least 20,200 in 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Next up, Australia unveils its biggest defense overhaul since World War II. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Daily Mail, Al Jazeera, and CNN. On Monday, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese unveiled the most significant shakeup of the country's defense spending since World War II. Designed to increase the preparedness of the Australian Defense Force, or ADF, amid fears about China's intentions in the Indo-Pacific. Defense Minister Richard Marles detailed that the ADF would be recast around six priority areas, including developing a nuclear-powered submarine capability, providing long-range strike capability, and enabling the ADF to operate from the country's northern bases. This comes as relations between Australia and China have been strained in recent years, and as tensions have mounted in East Asia, particularly over Taiwan. Meanwhile, China is forging ahead with the modernization of its armed forces. Australia is expected to spend 19 billion Australian dollars, that's 12 billion American dollars, over four years to implement more than 100 recommendations of the Defense Strategic Review, which found the country unprepared for multiple threats in the region. 
while Canberra is likely to have to find more funding in the longer term to make good on its vows to expand defense spending. This initial amount is reportedly fully funded through a combination of existing allocations and $7.8 billion Australian dollars in new savings. The government has already slashed the Army's plan to acquire up to 450 infantry fighting vehicles, which has been expected to cost up to $27 billion to just 129 armored personnel carriers as it seeks to accelerate and expand other projects, such as a land-based anti-ship missile system and new landing craft for the Army. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from the Financial Review of Australia. To offset the growing danger from China's significant military expansion and coercive behavior in Taiwan, the South China Sea and the Pacific, Australia needed to supercharge its defense and extend its combat reach by redefining the Army's role and giving more prominence to naval defenses. Canberra has future-proofed the country from incursions in its northwest shelf, exclusive economic zone, and disruptions to sea lines of communication. Cross that with this pro-China narrative from Global Times. Given that Australia has long been acquiescent to the U.S., falling short of complaining even when its interests are threatened by Washington, it's no surprise that this new defense review adopts the anti-PRC paranoia promoted by the U.S. Instead of bowing to hegemonic political pressure from America, Canberra should be focusing on restoring good relations with Beijing. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Australia will commission its first nuclear-powered submarine by March of the year 2037. Uh, so Australia is updating its military. I hope one thing stays the same. Those cool hats where one side is flapped up and the other side is flapped down. Man, those are really cool. I like those. Oh, yeah. I, the, I, I wonder, though, how much sun protection are they getting? Is it worth looking cool to, you know, have a sunburnt ear all the time? Or do they just point themselves away from the sun that side all the time? I don't know. I, I don't know, but I think they use sunscreen on one side of their face. Well, it's worth it. Those hats are really They nice. are. They are really cool and fashionable. Uh, you know, I say G.I. Joe is the most fashionable person in the world, but I think the Australians are close second. Well, in the movie Predator, Jesse Ventura got both sides. He was basically dressed like G.I. Joe, but he had one of those Australian flap hats. So that's, uh, oh, he didn't yeah. have any time to bleed, but he did have time to look good doing <laughs> You are absolutely correct. <laughs> you son of a <laughs> News from Kenya as a death toll passes 70 as police investigate a starvation cult. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The Guardian, Washington Post, Al Jazeera, and the East African. Kenyan police on Monday recovered 73 bodies, mostly from mass graves in an eastern Kenya forest, as the death toll of alleged followers of a Christian cult who believed they would go to heaven if they starved themselves, continues to rise. The final count could be even higher as the Red Cross has stated that 112 members of the Good News International Church have been reported missing. Police have found 29 survivors, some of them seemingly unwilling to be rescued. This comes as an 800-acre woodland area in the Shakahola Forest near the coastal town of Malindi has been combed since last week after receiving warnings from local people and rights activists about the cult's activities. Almost 50 graves have been identified so far, reportedly indicating that large-scale crimes under Kenyan law, as well as international, have been committed. The leader of the cult is Pastor Paul McKenzie, 
Mackenzie, who had been arrested twice before in 2019 and last month over the deaths of children, was released on bond in both cases, was arrested on April 15th after a judge ordered him to be detained for 14 days so police could carry out investigations. Fourteen other people are also in custody over the Shakahola deaths, including a man self-identified as Pastor Zablon Wayesu, who is believed to be Mackenzie's ally and co-conspirator. Well, those are some disturbing facts, Eric. We have Narrative A on this story from KenyaMoha.com. Kenyan authorities have turned a blind eye to the warning signs surrounding Paul McKenzie's death cult, which led to the deaths of so many people. Many bodies continue to be discovered daily, and rights groups alerted police to his radical teachings for years to no avail. We must continue to ask questions about how much authorities knew about this deadly cult before they started to investigate. Narrative B comes from K24 TV. Paul McKenzie is a terrorist, and Kenyan authorities are doing all they can to make sure his death cult is stopped and justice is served. Police are working together to rescue as many victims as possible and are fully committed to helping those deceived by this horrific group. A fugitive Sikh separatist is arrested in India, ending the manhunt. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of India, Tribune India News Service, India Today, CNN, and Al Jazeera. On Sunday, Amiratpal Singh, a Sikh separatist preacher who has been on the run since March 18th, was arrested in the northern Indian state of Punjab. While Singh claimed he had courted arrest, police said he surrendered after being surrounded in Road Village in the state's Moga district and was subsequently taken to Dabrugarh Central Jail in the northeastern state of Assam, where several of his aides are already being held. Singh's arrest comes three days after his wife, Karandeep Kaur, who was under surveillance by Punjab police, was detained at Amritsar Airport while she was trying to board a flight to London. Singh is a popular leader within the separatist Khalistan movement, which demands the creation of a sovereign Sikh nation for followers of the Sikh religion. The movement has been outlawed in India and is considered a deadly national security threat by the nation's government. Accused of attempted murder, obstruction of law enforcement, and creating disharmony in society, Singh has been arrested under the stringent National Security Act, which allows authorities to detain citizens without charge for up to a year. In March, Indian authorities detained hundreds of Singh supporters and shut down internet access for approximately 30 million people in Punjab, one of the country's most extensive blackouts in recent years. Those were the facts, and we have several spins, beginning with Narrative A, coming from Times of India. Amritpal Singh is backed by Pakistan-based Islamist groups and Kashmir-centric terrorist groups. It's no secret that the Khalistan agenda has primarily been kept alive from foreign soil by Sikh hardliners attempting to revive insurgency in Punjab, India's only Sikh-majority state, with a massive financial push. The Indian government must come down heavily on all anti-national elements. And Narrative B comes from The Wire of India. Traditional political parties in Punjab have failed to solve long-standing socio-economic crises, such as unemployment and drug addiction. The erosion of faith within political parties, and not Amritpal Singh, has revived the demand for a larger religious and social transformation in Punjab. However, Amritpal's radical posturing and the recent increase in activities of pro-Khalistani forces reflect a dangerous trend that may once again destabilize the state and the country. Narrative C is coming from time. Sikhs have faced increasing discrimination in India, especially with the growth of Hindu nationalism. The current treatment of Sikhs in Punjab is nearly identical to that which preceded the 1984 genocide. No wonder the demand for Khalistan has spread over the Sikh diaspora. 
The longer governments worldwide continue to let India treat a minority community oppressively, the more fervent Sikh protests are likely to become. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 52% chance that there will be a non-BJP Prime Minister of India before the year 2030. In our next story, a China envoy is under fire after remarks on ex-Soviet states. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Lithuanian National Radio and Television, Al Jazeera, TASS, Institute for the Study of War, Al-Arabia, and U.S. News and World Report. China's ambassador to France, Liu She, came under fire this weekend after questioning the sovereignty of former Soviet states in an interview on French television. When asked if he considered Crimea, annexed by Russia in 2014, a part of Ukraine, Liu said that under international law, former Soviet Union countries like Crimea lack effective status because there's no international accord to solidify their status as a sovereign country. He then said the issue of Crimea was complex and dependent on one's position, mentioning that Crimea was originally part of Russia. Representatives of Ukraine and France condemned the remarks and called on Beijing to clarify whether they represented the government's official position. Mao Ning, spokeswoman for China's foreign ministry, said on Monday that China had consistently respected the sovereign independence and territorial integrity of all countries. Meanwhile, Mikhail Rezovsiev, governor of the Crimean city of Sevastopol, said that Russia's Black Sea fleet repelled a drone attack on the peninsula early on Monday. He said one drone was shot down while another exploded of its own accord, adding that there were no reports of resultant damage or injuries. In other news, as Ukraine prepares to launch a spring counteroffensive, U.S. military think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, has reported that nine brigades are being organized for the operation. Discussing the counteroffensive in an interview with Al-Arabia over the weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky stated, Our army is getting ready, and we are doing everything we can in order to make it stronger. Commenting on the situation overall, he said, I cannot describe the situation as good, but we are fighting. We are stronger than we were a year ago. Elsewhere, Daria Trapova was denied bail by a court in Moscow on Monday. Prosecutors have accused the 26-year-old Russian woman of being behind an explosion in a St. Petersburg cafe that killed military blogger Vladin Tatarsky and injured more than 40 others earlier this month. Trapova faces charges of terrorism. All right, Eric, the pro-China narrative on this story comes from Global Times. China was one of the first countries to establish diplomatic relations with former Soviet countries. Its position has been clear and consistent since the start of these relations. China respects the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries and upholds the principles of the UN Charter. China's position on Ukraine has been objective and fair, and it is willing to work with the international community to play a role in creating a solution to the current crisis. The anti-China narrative is coming from Le Monde. The comments from Liu She are unacceptable and threaten the security of Europe. These words go beyond the norms of diplomatic discourse and should be vehemently repudiated. France must take immediate action to declare Liu a persona non grata and send him back to Beijing. And we have another nerd narrative. The Metaculous Prediction community predicts that there's a 10% chance that China will get involved in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict by the year 2024. Bed, Bath & Beyond files for bankruptcy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Fox News, CNN, and NBC. 
Home goods retail giant, Bed Bath & Beyond, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection Sunday, ending a tumultuous period that saw the company cut jobs and close stores to stay afloat. The company's 360 locations, 120 bye-bye baby stores, and associated websites will remain open for now as it has secured a $240 million loan to help fund its operations during bankruptcy. The New Jersey-based retailer said it will stop accepting coupons on April 26th, which is when it will start closing its stores and offer products at deep discounts. However, customers can return or exchange items until late May. CFO and Chief Restructuring Officer Holly Etlin said the full-chain wind-down is necessitated by economic realities, but added that the company's recent long-shot transactions do not preclude it from making every effort to salvage operations to benefit all stakeholders. The store, which warned in January that it would have difficulty surviving, saw its stock crash as much as 31% Monday. Analysts believe stores Wayfair and Overstock could see growth in the wake of Bed Bath & Beyond's bankruptcy. Launched in 1971 with two towels and bedding stores in New Jersey, Bed Bath & Beyond grew despite many obstacles, totaling more than 1,500 stores as recently as 2018. However, like many traditional retailers, the chain lagged behind large e-commerce rivals. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Narrative A is coming from Homepage News. Bed Bath & Beyond's downfall is as sad as it was predictable. Unfortunately, the retail market has completely changed over the past few decades, and it's extremely difficult for an unwieldy brick-and-mortar store to compete in today's world. There may have been decisions the company could have made to ensure its viability, but those moves needed to be made many years ago. The nostalgic home goods store has been on an inevitable path to insolvency over the past several years. And Narrative B comes from Slate. Bed, Bath & Beyond's demise is no one's fault but its own. Some may lament the store's death as the inevitable 21st century tragedy of a large retailer, but that's not the case. The company made the wrong move at every turn and had countless opportunities, as recently as last year, to save itself. No one is saying the retail market is booming, but a titan of the industry like Bed, Bath & Beyond could have weathered the storm with better management. My wife and I shopped at especially the Bye Bye Baby stores a lot, you know, a few years ago when we first started having kids. But we would always be with like a 20% coupon that came in the mail. Like we were constantly, everyone was constantly getting Bed Bath & Beyond coupons. We never paid full price. Well, it's your fault then. It's all your fault. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, those things, hey. You should have paid full price. uh, 20% off an $800 stroller. That's a lot. I mean, this isn't penny candy. I'm sorry, everybody. Sorry, shareholders. If you would have paid full price. Yeah. You, made, you made them throw in the towel. Because let's not forget, that's 20% <laughs> off, uh, you know, in 2017 dollars. That's a big yeah, difference now. It is. So, well, yeah. yeah. Okay, whatever. <sighs> Good luck with that. More financial news as Credit Suisse says it lost $68 billion in assets last quarter. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Business Today, Alaribia, and Inquirer. Credit Suisse said Monday it lost 61 billion Swiss francs or 68 billion US dollars in assets during the first quarter of this year, with customer deposits also declining by 67 billion Swiss francs during the same period. The bank's wealth management division saw its assets under management drop to 502.5 billion Swiss francs, down from 707 billion Swiss francs reported for the same time a year prior. The collapses of Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank also played a role as investors began making panic withdrawals, 
This could be Credit Suisse's last report, as rival UBS is expected to buy out the 167-year-old bank for 3 billion Swiss francs in stock and assume up to 5 billion Swiss francs in losses. As the bank said, the, quote, significant net asset outflows were particularly heavy in the second half of March. Swiss authorities organized an emergency rescue, pressuring UBS to agree to the merger on March 19th. Credit Suisse has also mutually agreed to terminate its planned $175 million acquisition of Michael Klein's investment banking business. UBS says it plans on scaling back its investment business after the acquisition. Credit Suisse, however, did report a pre-tax profit of 12.8 billion Swiss francs, largely due to the controversial write-down to zero of AT1 bonds and gains from selling a big portion of its securitized products group to Apollo Global Management. UBS says it expects the deal to bring $8 billion in cost reductions by 2027. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Narrative A from WRAL TechWire. As shown by its rapid-fire asset sales, Credit Suisse is finally dying out and is in need of a stronger business to take over. While UBS can take on this role, the next few years of integrating the two banks need to be taken with caution. UBS needs to rid the company of Credit Suisse's outdated, risky business tactics and prioritize wise banking management. Narrative B comes from TaxResearch.org. With a bank such as Credit Suisse to be bailed out in a manner horribly reminiscent of 2008, it's time for a radical rethinking of central bank policy. Such crises are the product of the central bank's policies and failure to supervise. Bankers cannot continue to attempt to serve both society and themselves. They must make the right decision, or these poorly regulated markets are at risk of falling off a cliff. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that the next great financial crisis in the U.S. will occur by February of 2028. Our final story, a report has emerged saying that Julie Chavez Rodriguez will be Biden's 2024 campaign manager. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, B Latina, CNN, CBS, and Independent. U.S. President Joe Biden's team has reportedly picked Julie Chavez Rodriguez, director of the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and 2020 deputy campaign manager, to manage the president's 2024 re-election campaign. While the decision was reportedly confirmed by two anonymous sources, the appointment hasn't been finalized and the president hasn't officially declared his run. Rodriguez also worked in the Obama White House and has served in the Biden administration since June of 2022. She is also the granddaughter of labor rights activists Cesar Chavez and Helen Fabela Chavez. Biden's team will reportedly be comprised of White House officials, aides such as Anita Dunn, Jen O'Malley Dillon, Mike Danillon, and Steve Ricchetti, will reportedly play pivotal roles in the campaign. CBS claimed Biden's campaign announcement would come with a video promotion, but that is subject to change. Biden reportedly spent the past weekend in Camp David with his wife and senior aides to finalize preparations. Biden will be the oldest candidate to seek re-election in American history. According to the AP Nork Center for Public Affairs Research, only 26% of Americans and 47% of Democrats would like to see Biden run again. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from CNN. Biden's campaign is moving quickly to finalize staffing for a robust 2024 run. Biden's age, as his advisors continue to project, merely shows his experience. Rodriguez, poised to oversee the campaign, has seen her star rise in the White House and has become part of the small circle of the president's most trusted advisors. 
Contrast that with the right narrative from the Gateway Pundit. As Biden prepares to run for election, there isn't a single poll that suggests he's in a good position. Inflation, border issues, increases in crime, and the decrease in the value of education have made it clear that Biden simply doesn't deserve a second term. The reality of approval ratings lower than Trump, the man Biden himself called the worst president in history, highlights the poor current state of the Biden administration. Metaculous prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 44% chance that Joe Biden will be elected as U.S. president in 2024. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 25th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Want more information on Improve the News? Visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.